This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. I'm joined here with uh, Jason Reza Giorgiani. Uh, he is a PhD in philosophy and author of numerous books, including Prometheus and Atlas. And uh, he has a new book out, uh, Prometheism. Uh, Jason, it's great having you back on the show. Pleasure to be back on your show, Robert. So your new book, uh, Prometheism, uh, you also have a Promethean uh, manifesto on your website. Is this just a philosophical essay, or are you also proposing this as a new political movement? I'm proposing it as a movement that's far more than political. It has um, spiritual, techno-scientific, and political dimensions to it. Uh, and uh, as you suggested, there is a manifesto, which is a kind of distilled essence of the book Prometheism, not on my website, but on a website uh, at the address prometheism.com. Prometheism, like Prometheus and Theism. Prometheism.com. And that manifesto, the Prometheus Manifesto, is a kind of uh, distillation of some of the key ideas from uh, the book, which, of course, much more extensively presents the vision of Prometheism. So, uh, just to kind of give background on uh, mythology, and for those who are less familiar with Greek mythology, uh, Prometheus, as the Greek god, was the enlightener of the civilizer, and uh, you could also say the genetic engineer of man. Like you also hear about a Promethean spirit or a Promethean uh, archetype, the creative spirit and genius unleashing man's uh, full potential. Some overlaps with uh, Nietzschean ideas, but uh, also also a kind of darker theme, which could create some more tension with more Abrahamic societies, like the idea of a fallen angel who gives mortals a secret of heaven. So can you explain what you mean more by the Promethean uh, spirit and uh, archetype and how that relates to the movement that you're putting forth? Sure. Um, you could look at the Prometheus archetype in terms of, let's say, maybe seven uh, basic attributes. The first uh, that we should start with is forethought, because after all, the very name Prometheus in Greek means forethought. Um, and uh, so Prometheus is the one who thinks ahead. When he's chained to the uh, Caucasus by Zeus, Zeus has his bird of prey picking out Prometheus's liver, and that's because the archaic Greeks used the liver for fortune-telling or prophesying, for seeing the future uh, in a manner akin to crystal ball-gazing. So Prometheus is the god of forethought or foresight, um, and that's in the sense not only of uh, projection, uh, the way we have uh, you know projective models in science, like predicting future phenomena based on um, models that we've built uh, from our analysis of empirical phenomena observed to date. It's not just, you know, projecting forward to some point on a graph um, uh, that you plug data into. It's also uh, precognition. So Prometheus taught the arts of divination to humanity as well. And uh, therefore I see the, the aspect of forethought, forethought that's definitive to the Prometheus archetype uh, definitive of the Prometheus archetype as being not only scientific projection, um, you know, of the kind that any uh, mathematical theoretical framework uh, allows us to uh, achieve, but also uh, precognition and uh, sort of prophetic vision. Then there's Prometheus as the creator, 
And as you suggested uh, in your brief opening remarks, Prometheus, not Zeus, is the creator of mankind in uh, the Greek myths. So in, insofar as we wind up subjugated to Zeus, the godfather, we've been stolen away from our true father. That's the um, proto-gnostic structure of the Prometheus myth, that uh, our true father, uh, who made us in his own image, is this rebel titan. And um, so his qualities are in some ways our own. And, you know, Carl Karenyi, who was a Jungian mythologist, wrote a whole book called Prometheus, the Archetypal Image of Human Existence. So there is very much this idea that, you know, we were meant uh, to be a race of new gods, having been created in the image of Prometheus. We were meant to be a race of new gods. And... Um, we were sort of stolen away and subjugated by Zeus and the Olympians, who feared um, being rivaled and ultimately deposed uh, by man. Yeah, for, so if we're looking at uh, Abrahamic societies, uh, Christianity has long been uh, dominant in Western civilization, and even for people who are secular, there, there's still the influence, uh, both, both probably both on the woke left and through... Uh, American conservative ideology, so just looking at the U.S., Europe, uh, Christian-based societies, and then you also have the background in Iran and interest in Iran, which uh, there's obviously still a lot of pre-Islamic influence, but with uh, Shia Islam, do you think that if Prometheanism were to take on, would there be any conflicts with the Abrahamic-based uh, uh, theology and ideology? Oh, undoubtedly. Um, and this, this would bring us to another aspect of Prometheus, uh, which is the rebel. Um, you know, uh, Prometheus rebelled against the Titans. Prometheus is a Titan who rebelled against his fellow Titans. He turned on his fellow Titans, uh, believing that Zeus would be a more benevolent leader of the Pantheon. And he's quickly disabused of this, um, of this uh, naive hope. Uh, and um, it turns out that, that Zeus is uh, as tyrannical a uh, leader as any of the Titans. So then Prometheus turns on Zeus. And, um, and now in an Abrahamic context, the Jehovah figure of Judaism uh, or you know, the, the God who um, sends forth Christ as his earthly incarnation in Christianity or Allah in Islam, uh, this sky father of the Abrahamic revelation, this uh, legislator from on high who reveals a uh, divinely mandated code of crime and punishment, certainly fits the Zeus archetype. And so um, in a Judeo-Christian context, I think that you can identify Lucifer uh, as an instantiation of the Prometheus archetype. But one of the reasons why I chose Prometheus um, as a symbol is that it's not dependent upon Judeo-Christianity. It's true that within a Judeo-Christian culture, for that matter, an Islamic one, there is a kind of Luciferian or Satanic quality to the Promethean. Um, but Prometheus far predates the rise of uh, Judeo-Christianity, let alone Islam. Uh, and when you t talk in terms of the context of the Islamic world, there are a lot of overlaps which we could get into between um, Prometheus and Ahura Mazda, the deity of uh, Zoroastrianism. I definitely want to get into that when we discuss Iran more, uh, but with the ideology and uh, politics, uh, you kind of have American conservatives who maybe want to go back uh, to the 50s, or and then you have a traditionalist, and uh, they tend to believe in like a kind of a cyclical view, such as like the Kali Yuga. I think w one analogy is that. Uh, is that traditionalism or reactionaries just want to go back? And then there's a kind of view of retrofuturism or archaeofuturism. It's an aesthetic genre too, but as politics, basically that the future we should have had is on an alternative timeline. Is there any parallels between that kind of retrofuturist ideology or in thought and uh, and basically like a kind of a futurism that is forward oriented and with that in uh, Prometheanism? Absolutely. I've said before um, in, in interviews uh, going back to when Prometheus and Atlas was released 
that when I was writing Prometheus and Atlas, and of course Prometheism is picking up on the uh, philosophical trajectory of Prometheus and Atlas, it's resuming that uh, trajectory in my thinking. When I was developing Prometheus and Atlas, I was looking for a, an umbrella term to characterize this, well, I guess you could call it worldview. Um, although I, I see it as in some way transcending uh, the dichotomy between various worldviews. But in any case, I was looking for an umbrella term to characterize my thinking. And I came up with archaeofuturism, and I googled it, and I found Guillaume Fay. Um, and what I mean by archaeofuturism and what someone like Guillaume Fay means are, are two uh, relatively uh, different things. They're, they're quite different from one another, but be that as it may, um, yeah, I would definitely characterize the vision of Prometheism as archaeofuturistic, and it, it, there is this sense that, you know, um, we we uh, departed from this futurist trajectory that we were on. We uh, we sh we need to kind of go back to the future. We need to reclaim that vision of the world of tomorrow. But I also do think that we need a an archetypal basis for it. It has to be rooted in a living heritage. And in this way, you know, I, I very much agree with Nietzsche that uh, we need a monumental conception of history to inspire enduring future development. It cannot be rootless and um, framed entirely in terms of uh, abstract, rational uh, concepts. Would you say that Prometheanism or the Promethean archetype, is it unique to the West, Europeans or Indo-Europeans, or is this for all peoples of the globe? The challenge that faces us in terms of the technological singularity, uh, in other words, the convergent advancement of various technologies like genetics, robotics, um, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and so forth, this challenge is a global challenge. Uh, it's a challenge that faces humanity at large, and yet I think it would be obvious to anybody that um, techno-scientific techno development uh, on a titanic scale, uh, which has led up to this impending singularity was driven largely by Western colonial powers. And uh, so the solution is also um, more relevant to the West and to other Indo-European uh, cultures for that same reason, which isn't to say that um, it uh, will be restricted to the West, because again, we're facing a global challenge. And so while the uh, Prometheus archetype is one that uh, emerges in, I would say, the Indo-European world, because again, and we can get into the details of this, it arguably the first form of Prometheism is early Zoroastrianism. So uh, it's an archetype that's relevant particularly to the Indo-European world in terms of its genesis, but I believe that Prometheism has a global uh, destiny. And of course, people on the left would say, well, uh, then you are being imperialistic, you know, you're advocating for hegemony. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, the hegemony already exists. The world has been inframed by uh, Western uh, technological science, or you could say, if you want to extend this conception to include the major scientific breakthroughs and technological developments that took place in Iran, let's say, during the Middle Ages, um, the globe has been already encompassed by Indo-European uh, techno-scientific uh, thinking. And so the solution has to come from out of the same spiritual matrix. And in this way, I, I'm very much aligned with Heidegger in a kind of dialectical thinking that sees that the solution uh, the, uh, has to come from out of the same matrix as the problem. Uh, so, you know, Heidegger uh, talked about how techne, the, the root notion for uh, technology, the Greek concept um, uh, that uh, we've developed into technology, techne has two aspects. It's craft as uh, machinery, and it's also uh, craft as um, uh, poetic creation. So, uh, te te technoscience, I mean, techne is not just machinery, it's also machination, and um, there's this kind of spirit of machination uh, which you see in the Prometheus archetype, insofar as Prometheus is not just the god who gifts humanity with, uh, you know, science and technology, with the fire of the forge, and, and you know, enlightens humanity with uh, science, with scientific knowledge, 
uh, or at least the, the power to, uh, to frame questions scientifically. But Prometheus is also a trickster. And so he is also the deity of machination. And what Heidegger was thinking uh, in his late writings on technology is that the way to address the danger posed to humanity at large by instrumentalizing uh, technologies in the modern epoch is to retrieve the poetic dimension of techne to understand the spectral essence, as it were, of uh, technological science. And I think that the god he claimed would save us in the face of this challenge is the same god that he evokes in his rectoral address when he identifies Prometheus as the god of science uh, and says that science is, is um, inherently uh, philosophical and that uh, Prometheus is, as it were, uh, the patron uh, deity um, that it has inspired all uh, techno-scientific development and that we need to sort of uh, consciously recognize that aesthetic idea and embrace and embody it so that we stop having an unconscious relationship with technological science and we can use it more constructively rather than uh, running the risk that it's going to degrade our human existence. So as far as the singularity including transhumanism and AI there's a lot of uh, hypothetical dystopian scenarios in science fiction but also in, re in reality based on ongoing research by a lot of by a lot of different uh, writers on uh, AI think like starting with sort of what Andrew Yang is talking about with uh, just with like mass automation and then the more the more kind of dystopian examples so like what can happen with nanotechnology and the impacts on individual rights privacies orchestrating disasters or just kind of an overall enslavement to the to the power structure where one gets to the point where the average person has no way in rising up in class or in they're basically making like any kind of political change impossible so I think a lot, there are like uh, traditionalist and conservatives or Luddites who would just oppose this change but the question is to accept it as inevitable and if it's inevitable how to properly regulate these technologies uh, make sure, like who they are accessible to and then the question is is there a uh, limited time frame or a point of no return to when the singularity uh, fully takes hold? Okay, the answer to that is a little bit complicated. Um, it's inevitable in the sense that in terms of techno-scientific developments that are verging on this singularity, it's like a freight train. Now that that doesn't mean that it can't be stopped, but stopping it at this point would mean engineering uh, the demolition of advanced industrial civilization on a planetary scale. And this is a subject that I get into in Prometheism. In other words, there's no way to slow um, and channel or siphon developments in uh, genetic engineering, um, you know, uh, robotics, nanotechnology, um, artificial intelligence or virtual reality. There's no way to control these developments such that they do not culminate in this technological singularity. Uh, but we can engage in a controlled demolition of the entire uh, advanced industrial and economic base that is fueling these technological developments. And when I say we, I don't mean we the people. I mean um, an elite, in particularly the military, uh, industrial, and intelligence complex of the Anglo-American world uh, could take measures to stop technological development and ultimately roll back the clock to the pre-industrial era. And this would be utterly catastrophic and it's a scenario that I get into at length in Prometheism. I call this the scenario of, well, I mean, I didn't coin this term, I adopted from Richard Dolan, the breakaway civilization. Uh, but I have a specific concept involving the breakaway civilization, which I first elaborated in my book Lovers of Sophia, in uh, an essay called Black Sunrise and Lovers of Sophia. I introduced this concept of destructive departure in worldview warfare, which I won't get into at length right now. But in a nutshell, it's the ideology of a breakaway civilization which decides to um, stop the technological singularity from coming into being by uh, uh, engaging in a controlled demolition of the advanced industrial world. And this would mean um, 
for example. Are you uh, talking about what the existing elites want to do or what uh, Prometheanism would seek to accomplish? No, I'm talking about what the existing elites might do. Uh, and by elites, I mean people within the military-industrial-intelligence complex uh, who, uh, realizing that humanity at large is uh, woefully unprepared to deal with the technological singularity or to deal with the spectral revolution, in other words, mainstream scientific acceptance of parapsychological phenomena, which I argue is inextricable from the technological singularity, and we can get into that separately, why that would be the case. But looking at you know, how uh, catastrophic the social and political consequences of both the technological singularity and what I call the spectral revolution would be, these elites uh, could engage in a controlled demolition of advanced industrial civilization by, for example, genetically engineering certain uh, pandemics, by uh, uh, causing artificial earthquakes and their attendant tsunamis, um, by bringing about, you know, famines, uh, and uh, engineering catastrophic climate change using technologies like HARP. And this is a scenario that I go into of a kind of um, a, a contriving of catastrophes that appear to be natural and that compound in such a way that bring about the end of uh, industrial civilization that also massively depopulate the planet and make it a lot uh, easier to control, make the remaining population a lot easier to control and regress us basically to a period, um, uh, to, to a, a level of society comparable to, let's say, the Renaissance, if not, you know, the late Middle Ages. You're talking about an, a neo-agrarian, neo-feudal society. Yeah, it does seem to be like, there's a kind of meme about, online, about everyone's going to be living in, in pods and uh, eating bugs. So, do you see, I mean, do you see this trend now, like, getting people gradually used to, like, a lower uh, standard of living, like... The, gra the kind of the gradual decline and like an intentional drive to get people to embrace a subsistence standard of living or it's more difficult to for the common people to rise up and implement any kind of uh, change yes I totally agree with that and I also think that they're using the discourse of deep ecology to do that in a very cynical way you know I'm all for uh, protection of the environment and concern for the ecosystem um, but I think that certain singularity level technologies like zero-point energy moving from fossil fuels or even nuclear to zero-point energy would be great for the environment. So um, I think that these elites who are considering the controlled demolition of advanced industrial civilization are very cynically using or will plan to in a much more aggressive way cynically use the discourse of deep ecology in order to uh, take us to a subsistence living model and uh, to basically create a regressive, not a regressive society, but various regressive societies uh, that um, have a, a basically traditionalist structure. So you were mentioning traditionalism earlier and, you know, how these traditionalists, uh, they venerate a bygone golden age and believe that we're in the last of a series of world ages which cyclically repeat themselves over long spans of time. We're in the Kali Yuga, or as the Norse call it, the age of the wolf, the the uh, last and most degenerate of the world ages before the whole cycle repeats itself with the rise of a new golden age. And this is a very regressive view of time and history, um, which does not acknowledge that there's any cumulative progress. Uh, now, I would never be so naive as to say that progress historically is linear, but I, I see uh, you know, a kind of upward spiral in the course of human history. And and what's been lost to our history, human prehistory. I see it as an upward spiral. Um, and I have a, you know, Prometheism is a futurist vision. Uh, it's archaeofuturist, but that is a form of futurism. And in that way, it very much rejects this traditionalist conception of history, which I think is going to be institutionalized uh, by these elites who want to uh, regress us to, to, to uh, pre-industrial societies they're also going to use the uh, the discourse of uh, you know traditionalist cosmology and traditionalist metaphysics uh, in order to institutionalize that kind of uh, neo-feudal system. And Prometheism is very much a rebellion against that. Uh, with uh, CRISPR gene editing, uh, this is already uh, taking place uh, in China. 
and there are there are moral taboos in the West, both from a Christian standpoint and uh, from a eugenic standpoint. But if CRISPR gene editing uh, were to take really to take off like genetic engineering, uh, you could see like a boost in IQ. It could boost uh, the immune system, uh, and then like other just basically like physical traits as well. But it could also be used to weed out uh, nonconformity, like select for traits such as agreeableness. Yeah, exactly. That's that's uh, one of the things that I'm most concerned about in terms of the rise of China is that to the extent that the Chinese are the first people to um, institute a population-wide state-mandated genetic engineering program involving CRISPR, uh, th they may, uh, having subsidized this program and, and submitting it to centralized government control, they may tweak those elements of the human genome that uh, correlate to certain personality traits and they may um, they may recalibrate uh, the personality profile of their population to be more uh, cooperative, as they would like to put it. In other words, more collectivistic, even more collectivistic than they already are, more submissive, and uh, uh, more uh, deferential toward authority, um, and uh, severely constrain the potential for the cultivation of the individual and the kind of innovation and creative dynamism that comes from uh, the, the, the individual. So, and here's the problem, is that if they start tinkering with the, the genome in that way, they're tinkering with the human genome. You can't contain those effects to China, especially given the scale of the Chinese population. And this means that we, because whatever they do with genetic engineering will have population-wide effects on humanity at large, ultimately, within very short order, uh, you cannot allow the Chinese, we cannot allow the Chinese to do whatever they want with genetic engineering. There needs to be a single vision for the ethical limits to uh, re-engineering humanity using technologies like CRISPR. And I'm certainly uh, not in favor of um, banning uh, genetic engineering in any way. I think there are all kinds of positive uses for this technology in terms of like increased IQ, boosting memory capacity, uh, eliminating hereditary diseases and so forth, uh, but the, the limits on the use of this technology need to be determined on a global scale or a humanity-wide scale, even if we move beyond the Earth and settle Mars, for example. Uh, wherever humanity is, uh, the, the same ethical standard needs to be applied in terms of the uses of genetic engineering because misuses of genetic engineering will affect the human population at large. So this is one of my concerns about the rise of China. Uh, another one, of course, will be artificial intelligence because, it, you know, at the rate that the Chinese are progressing in terms of AI and, you know, computer processing power and so forth, it's quite possible that they're going to deliver certain aspects of the uh, function of their government and even their military over to some uh, rudimentary artificial intelligence within the next, you know, 15 years or so. And so I think that it's very important to confront China before they get to that point. We'll get to China in the section on geopolitics. Uh, do you have an interest in uh, parapsychology, including psychokinesis? There were, I mean, there were some CIA programs back in the 70s and 80s, but how much of a scientific explanation is there behind parapsychology? And uh, what are your thoughts on the other research? There's a mountain of evidence uh, very rigorous, hardcore empirical evidence for psychokinesis at this point. I would particularly point people toward um, the Princeton Engineering An Anomalies Research Program, PEAR, P-E-A-R, uh, which was run by Robert John. Um, Dr. Robert John was an aerospace engineer who became the dean of the uh, School of uh, Engineering and Applied Sciences at Princeton University, ran a program there for, oh, oh at least two decades. Uh, if not longer, where they, they did thousands and thousands of trials um, with random individuals just pulled off the campus. These people were not virtuosos. And one thing that's been very clearly observed, by the way, in psychic research is that just as in sports, there are virtuosos. You know, there are people with a higher or lower aptitude to train a certain psychic ability, whether that's ESP or psychokinesis or whatever. But in these trials at Princeton, they just did this with random people and they did thousands of trials, and they found that uh, when they submitted this to a statistical meta-analysis, there's astronomical odds against uh, a chance uh, for the fact that 
people can, with their intention alone, skew the output of a random number generator, which is a truly random process. You have these random number generators that, that output data into a uh, computer based on the decay rate of a um, uh, radioactive element, which is a quantum, quantum mechanically random process. And um, the, you know, the, this uh, decay rate is processed into a computer in terms of ones and zeros. And um, they were able, these, these uh, participants in these experiments, were able to skew that outcome very significantly away from random, from what it randomly would have been. Uh, by going, going high or low, you know, uh, having more ones or more zeros output um, from the uh, RNG machine into the computer. And so this demonstrates the legitimacy of psychokinesis. And uh, John, Robert John, the, the man who ran this program, who was the dean of the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, was interested in this because he had encountered psychokinesis in his work as an aerospace engineer. He knew about the so-called gremlin effect, which is that uh, the more um, electronic components were incorporated into the cockpits of various aircraft, let's say particularly the military, and the more sensitive these components were, the more they became sensitive to the psychological states of the pilots. And so particularly in, in uh, aerial dogfights, if the pilot of an aircraft were to uh, enter an emo intense emotional state, you know, basically kind of panic in their cockpit or you know, be under high stress or whatever, uh, it, would, it would affect the electronic machinery in the cockpit. And it, it was a trade secret, he found, of the aerospace industry that they had to build multiple redundant systems into these cockpits in order to uh, guard against this quote-unquote gremlin effect. Um, so that piqued his interest, and then he carried out these studies at Princeton on psychokinesis. Now, this is a small-scale effect. I mean, it's very well demonstrated, so it demonstrates in principle that psychokinesis is real. It's a small-scale uh, effect, but then if you look back in the history of psychic research, and you, uh, you, know, you, you go all the way back to the late 19th century when uh, scientists like Sir William Crookes were involved in experiments at the British Society for Psychical Research with a medium like uh, Daniel Douglas uh, Hume, you see that Hume was observed by, by uh, Crookes and by other scientists of the time, William James was also involved in this kind of research, um, he was observed levitating tables off the ground. Uh, so uh, Hume and, and other mediums in the late 19th century into the early 20th demonstrated large-scale psychokinesis. Um, so this is relevant in terms of the thesis of Prometheism uh, insofar as the closer we get to engineering something like strong artificial intelligence, and you know uh, that's going to involve moving from digital binary computers into quantum computers that, that behave a lot like the random number generators which were used in the Princeton uh, trials. The closer we get to uh, engineering strong artificial intelligence using quantum computers, the more these effects, psychokinetic effects for example, uh, but also telepathy and, and clairvoyance and so forth. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Robin Hansen, but he's uh, written about uh, uploading uh, consciousness to AI? Uploading consciousness to AI, yes. So what I was saying was the more these effects are going to be observed in laboratories that are well-funded at places like MIT and uh, Carnegie Mellon and so forth where they're researching AI. Now, what you're bringing up is an even further stage. When we get to the point where we're trying to transfer human consciousness into um, some kind of artificially intelligent computer, even if it's a computer inside of a robot or an android body, it's going to be recognized by the researchers involved in those programs that it would be impossible to do that without accepting the kind of uh, empirical data that's been amassed by parapsychologists for over a century now. In other words, the materialistic, mechanistic model that they're working with right now will fail. They will encounter certain bottlenecks, and the only way for them to get through those, uh, get around these obstacles, um, will be to abandon the uh, uh, redu overly reductive materialist paradigm in terms of which they're working, to reject that uh, uh, naive mechanism in favor of uh, an approach that incorporates the uh, research of parapsychology. And I think uh, taking that kind of approach, we are going to achieve the transfer of human consciousness, the guided 
uh, transmigration of human consciousness from out of an organic body into uh, some kind of a biomechanical um, uh, android that has been uh, designed to support a strong artificial intelligence. Well, looking at the topic of elites and uh, the subject of who should rule, so kind of looking over, uh, there's this idea of a managerial elite and just the kind of idea of elites who are just bo kind of boring managerial types. And then obviously there's a the much higher level, which you were talking about, and then like analyzing like who the current elites are and who should rule. You, I mean, you do have the sort of Hindu caste system, and obviously in, in practice, with, yeah, with the Hindu caste system, I don't advocate it in practice, and obviously someone's, each individual is not going to reflect these core values, but I'm just kind of putting it out there as a, I, I've heard like the Brahmin versus Vaishya used more as a kind of a metaphor, where the Brahmins, as those who advance civilization versus Vaishyas, or the more, the merchant caste and then the bureaucrat caste, as a managerial type, just sort of more as a metaphor, but I think a better analogy would be the Olympians, like Zeus versus the Prometheans. So uh, the existing elites could be, that could be an analogy for uh, Zeus and the Olympians. And then do we need to kind of select a new, a new elite, uh, Promethean elite to replace the current ones? Yes. So, okay, this is a deep question and, and a very important one. Um, so I reject the Hindu caste system because, and, and it's, you're very right to bring up the Hindu caste system, because I think one feature of the neo-feudal, neo-agrarian system that the current, some of the current elites would like to move us back into in order to avert the technological singularity and its attendant challenges, one feature of that system is the Hindu caste system, or rather the type of system that the Hindu caste system is a kind of uh, echo and, and uh, reflection of. And so, you know, in, in the Hindu caste system, you have the, the devas, the gods, who are analogous to the Olympians. I mean, the Olympian, the uh, Greeks are one branch of the Indo-European community, the Hindus are another. So uh, whether it's the devas or the Olympians, you have these gods on top of the caste system. And then you have the Brahmin uh, caste, who are like a priestly elite. They, you might consider them also a sort of technocratic intellectual elite uh, in a contemporary context. And then you have the kshatriyas who are nightly cast. Um, in the context of, let's say, German National Socialism, that would be something like the SS. So one analogy that I've heard is that uh, that fascism is an attempt for the warrior caste to rule, uh, communism or Marxism for the proletariat to rule, or would be like the sudras with the Hindu caste analogy, and then capitalism is uh, ruled by the merchant caste. So I'm not sure if this is your views, but what I would advocate is I'm opposed to any kind of rigid hierarchical caste system, but a society where there's a specialization with flexibility. So you'd have a group, intellectuals and artists would be a group, business would be a group, science, and then military and technology. And then focusing on specialization, but ideally, uh, I think that uh, fascism, communism, and capitalism were flawed because they they attempted to put power into one group. Ideally, these groups would uh, share power. So uh, let me address that. So I was going through this Hindu caste system. Um, I, I don't agree with you that fascism, at least in its uh, national socialist form, was uh, attempting to put the Kshatriya class in power. What they were doing was they were building a pyramid for the devas to come back and sit down on top of. Uh, so the, the Nazi elite were the kind of Kshatriya caste, but their ultimate aim was not to rule themselves, their aim was to deliver the planet over to the hands of the devas at the end of the Kali Yuga. Because according to their worldview, uh, they were, they were uh, the, the last expression of truth and justice in the most degenerate age, and their task was to prepare for the return of the gods and the establishment of a new golden age. They were very much going to resurrect this, this uh, uh, archaic Indo-European hierarchy. Now, my problem with that kind of hierarchy is that you're never going to be able to guarantee that uh, the right souls are being born into the right caste. So, I mean, I accept the extensive empirical evidence for reincarnation, 
that's been amassed by people like Dr. Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia. I think there's very compelling empirical evidence for reincarnation. Um, but I think that when you look at the, the devils in the details in terms of, of uh, that evidence, and when you look at the details of the studies on, uh, you know, especially children's memories of past lives and so forth, you see that the dynamics involved in the transmigration of the soul or metempsychosis or whatever you want to call it does not fit the rigidity of the Hindu caste system. And it's very likely that you're going to wind up with, you know, people who are spiritual aristocrats, visionaries, you know, innovative uh, geniuses being born into uh, the low castes. Um, and, and vice versa, you're going to wind up with low caste people being born as Kshatriyas or, or even as Brahmins. The system uh, does not work perfectly. And so I would prefer a meritocratic system of the kind that you see in Plato's Republic. Plato uh, has an equally hierarchical structure in Republic, a, a structure that is as hierarchical as the Hindu caste system. Um, uh, it certainly rejects egalitarianism and democracy. Uh, as I would uh, follow him in rejecting, uh, but it's a meritocratic vision where everyone gets the same education, at least at primary educational levels, and uh, whatever uh, you know, social, uh, uh, whatever I don't want to say social strata you're born into, but you know, whatever uh, uh, social type you're born into, whether you're born into the intellectual kind of technocratic ruling elite or whether you're born into kind of the soldierly class, the, 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 the uh, class of knights, or whether you're among the producers, the farmers, and, and you know, tradesmen of the society, you are uh, moved into the uh, social class uh, whose responsibilities are most uh, in accord with your own uh, talents and, and abilities. And so, um, you know, talent and, and ability is rewarded through uh, the universalization of the educational system, at least at you know primary and secondary levels. So the vision that Plato lays out in Republic is very much uh, uh, akin to what I uh, have adopted and embraced and, and I'm developing with a view to the contemporary epoch in Prometheism. I think that you also see a similar vision in Nietzsche, a similar kind of um, a, a advocacy for a true aristocracy, which is really a, a meritocracy. It, it rejects uh, egalitarianism and uh, the kind of uh, you know uh, lack of discernment that's endemic to all forms of democracy, but it also uh, allows for social mobility based on um, uh, individual capacities and uh, with a view to where any particular individual would be most beneficial to society as a whole. One of the things uh, with uh, automation and uh, technology, AI, and all the revenue the profits is that it should ideally uh, free us to pursue uh, creative endeavors. The importance of aesthetics for civilization, including economic investments, and then there's also the like, what would a Promethean aesthetic be? So uh, retro. I think retrofuturism is one, retrofuturism as an aesthetic, and I think maybe the best example would be uh, the Prometheus and Atlas statue at Rockefeller Center that you, that used to represent your first book, so Prometheism as an aesthetic. So what are your comments on both, uh, what do you see as the aesthetics of Prometheanism, and what should the role of creative, of the creative class and aesthetic visionaries ideally be for society? I think that uh, creative uh, geniuses should lead uh, a Prometheus society in general. And I would reject any uh, firm distinction between uh, people who are creative in a purely aesthetic sense, like you know, painters, um, poets, uh, architects, and so forth. And uh, on the other hand, scientific innovators, um, uh, innovative technologists uh, like uh, Nikola Tesla, for example. Um, I, I very much uh, embrace this Renaissance ideal of the, the artist scientist or the poetic um, inventor uh, that you see in people like uh, Leonardo da Vinci and Nikola Tesla, even in Jack Parsons uh, and other figures like that. So uh, I would say that the, the creative, innovative genius in general ought to be uh, the leader of the Prometheus Society. It's that class of people who I see in the, in the position of the Platonic guardians 
of a Prometheus society. And I would agree with you uh, that in a rough way you could characterize um, the aesthetic of Prometheism as a kind of retro-futurism only in the sense that uh, we've abandoned the vision of the future that we had. Um, you know, as late as the 1980s, we still had this kind of uh, world of tomorrow uh, aesthetic futurism. The popularity with 80s retrofuturist aesthetics, including like you'll see like a Roman statue in neon, because that was sort of the last era where there was uh, there was fu there was uh, futurism. There, I mean, there are kind of a lot of historic ir ironies because like with the Rockefeller Center. Uh, that was built by the existing power structure at the time, but it still really captures that essence. You see it from from the Art Deco era, especially in New York City, and you also see it in the 80s as well. Yeah, I'll give you a few concrete examples. For, ex for example, the drafts of Hugh Ferris. Uh, Hugh Ferris was a draftsman uh, in the 1920s and 30s um, who was responsible for developing this vision of like... Uh, you know the the uh, of Gotham City and uh, the city of tomorrow and so forth. So the the drafts of Hugh Ferris, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, I would say. I visited I, the Civic Center that he designed in Marin County. That place they have used it in different uh, science fiction films, but that that place is amazing. Yeah. So you know he drew very consciously from uh, archaic aesthetics like uh, Babylonian architecture and Mayan architecture. And he's he's fusing it with the kind of uh, you know modernist uh, sensibility in a way that I think is uh, a herald of what we would see in a Prometheus world society. And then of course you know Sid Mead um, is another futurist whose uh, whose aesthetic I think is uh, uber Promethean. And then um, this is a spectrum really. It's a spectrum that goes all the way I think into some of the more disturbing transhumanist uh, aesthetics that you see in somebody like H.R. Giger. Just looking at kind of cities abroad, so uh, somewhere like Dubai, like they have unlimited wealth, but uh, I don't really consider Dubai to be Promethean. It more seems like a like a kid playing SimCity who has unlimited money, but you do see more of our futurism if you, if you watch like YouTube videos of Iran from the 70s or a lot of the imagery, it definitely seems to be like a fascination with uh, archaeofuturism from that era? Oh, undoubtedly, 1970s Iran was, archaeo was going in an archaeofuturist direction. There's no question about it. Um, it the Shahiyad uh, Tower in Tehran, Shahiyad Monument in Tehran, uh, which was renamed the Freedom uh, Monument, um, is a perfect example of a Persian uh, archaeofuturism. Um, and, you know, it's not incidental that at that time the Shah was basically adopting a Mussolini-style uh, fascist form of government. And uh, you remember that Benito Mussolini was a close collaborator with um, F.T. Marinetti in the early years, in the 1920s. So uh, Marinetti's Italian futurism and Mussolini's fascism were um, uh, intimately intertwined, at least at the outset, uh, before they veered apart from one another. And uh, you see this type of aesthetic in, in, and, and also this type of politics being unfolded by the Shah of Iran in the 1970s. And I agree with you that Dubai is nothing like that, never will be like that. It's an Arab Las Vegas at best. Uh, and, and it, you know, it's, it's uprooted and I don't think ultimately has any future. And looking at the future of geopolitics, uh, whether the U.S. will remain a hegemony, whether it will be China, or whether it will be a multipolar world. So what you're advocating is a geopolitical constellation, basically of the West, Russia, Iran, and India as a counterbalance uh, to China and the Sunni Muslim sphere. Don't forget Japan. Very oh, important yes, element Japan too. Japan. You see the Buddhist-based uh, nations. Yes, uh, led by Japan. So um, my vision is for an, a kind of constellation of Indo-European world powers to join together uh, under the umbrella of a Promethean ethos and form an effective uh, global management regime that protects humanity from the most uh, catastrophic consequences of the technological singularity. Um, and uh, this would include the West, uh, which is of course Indo-European, but also the Russians. Um, let's remember that you know 
the cradle of the Indo-European world is in the Russian civilizational sphere. It's the area around the Black Sea, uh, which then extends down into Iranian civilization as well. Um, and then you have India, uh, the Indo in the Indo-European, and then finally the Buddhist world, uh, all of the Buddhist countries, the most powerful and most technolo technologically advanced of which is Japan. And so, and remember uh, that in Prometheus and Atlas, I had this whole chapter uh, focused on Japan called Kill a Buddha on the Way, which went from, you know, the creation of Zen Buddhism all the way to Japanese anime uh, and showed the ways in which, uh, you know, the Japanese are uh, in, the, in the orbit of the Indo-European world and are, are really on a cultural civilizational level part of the Indo-European world. Uh, so, yes, I see this constellation of Indo-European world powers as essential to containing and defeating the existential enemies uh, of Prometheism, which are uh, the Confucianist Chinese. And let me be clear, this is not, I don't uh, have any conception of racial warfare against the Chinese race or anything like that. Uh, I have no problem with Chinese Buddhists. Um, you know, a smaller Buddhist China would, would be no problem. It could be, you know, very con constructive element uh, of a global uh, Promethean order. Um, but the fact is that this Confucianist behemoth is dedicated to certain uh, values and is, uh, is uh, structured according to certain principles that are antithetical to Prometheism. Um, and then also there's a threat from Sunni Islam. There's a, a danger of the rise of a intercontinental caliphate that would extend all the way from North Africa and Arabia to Malaysia and Indonesia. And so, yes, uh, you know, as I first suggested in uh, World State of Emergency, we ought to have an Indo-European world order that contains and defeats both China and Sunni Islam. And I think Japan is, is key, uh, not just Russia, but also Japan is key to defeating China. And in that whole scheme, Iran is key to defeating Sunni Islam. So, yeah, you're, you're accurately describing the geopolitics of Prometheism. And you also advocate uh, Iran playing a uh, bigger role uh, in the Middle East, including uh, you were involved with the Iranian Renaissance movement. And uh, would you say that ch change has to come from uh, within Iran? Because uh, there are da dangers of those who want to like topple the regime, and then foreign powers would come in and then loot uh, the resources. And then there's also the threat from the Saudis and the other Wahhabis. Yes, I broke with the Iranian Renaissance because in the course of my work with them, uh, I realized that any attempt to topple the current regime in Iran right now would be controlled by uh, geopolitical and financial interests that want to see a balkanization of Iran. They want to carve the country up into microstates like uh, a, a independent Kurdistan a, a larger Azerbaijan amalgamating uh, what's left of Iranian Azerbaijan. And I think the current, the current conflict with, between Armenia and Azerbaijan could hypothetically play into that. That's correct. So they want to amalgamate, you know, that so-called Republic of Azerbaijan, the fake country uh, with the capital uh, of Baku, is really part of Iran. It's a part of Iran that was conquered by the Russian czars in the 19th century. And they want to take what's left of Azerbaijan, the, the Iranian province of Azerbaijan, within the nation state of Iran and amalgamate it to that and have a larger Azerbaijan, an independent Kurdistan. They want to take the entire oil producing region of Iran, Khuzestan, and turn it into this Arab republic called Al-Ahwaz, uh, which would uh, shorten Iran's uh, uh, coast along the Persian Gulf, which they'd like to rename the Arabian Gulf. And then they want to take the Baluchistan province, which is on the border of Pakistan, turn it into a Republic of Baluchistan, even though all the Baluch, including the Baluch living in uh, Pakistan, are ethnic Iranians. Yeah, it just seems strange. Like, I've met people in L.A. who are from Iranian backgrounds, but they hate the regime so much, like they're parroting, like, the neocon propaganda. They, they are committing treason. Uh, unbeknownst to themselves, they, they so loathe Islam... Uh, and look, I'm no friend of Islam, okay? I mean, I'm advocating for Prometheism. As I said at the outset of the interview, within the, the Islamic ideological context, Prometheus is Satan. He's Shaitan. Uh, but that having been said, there, there is no question that 
the form of Islam in the Islamic Republic of Iran, in other words, Persian Shiaism, preserves in an occulted form a lot of the Zoroastrian and Mithraic ideals and principles and sensibilities uh, from the pre-Islamic uh, uh, era in Iran. And these are Promethean in character. And so th there's no comparison between how potentially constructive uh, Shiaism is uh, by comparison to Sunni Islam. So uh, my vision now is that we should encourage positive transformation within the Islamic Republic of Iran in the direction of Prometheism, uh, but that we, should, we ought not to break Iran because we need Iran as the hegemon of the Islamic world instead of Saudi Arabia or Pakistan, which are the really the, uh, the uh, Janus heads of the future Sunni caliphate, we need Iran to be the nation capable of projecting force and influence throughout the Islamic world, to be the hegemon of the Islamic world, and ultimately guide that whole uh, geostrategic region uh, toward Prometheism over the long run. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I broke with the Iranian Renaissance. It's the most fundamental reason, because I became convinced that they were naive in uh, their assessment of the various people with whom they were having dealings, you know, people in the United States uh, government and the Trump administration and, and others uh, who shall uh, remain nameless. Uh, I became, I saw enough evidence to convince me that uh, these uh, uh, people who were being lobbied uh, were ready to carve up the country and hand over Iran's resources, uh, the resources rather of a balkanized Iran, to various uh, foreign corporations and uh, to uh, allow Iran to be thoroughly infiltrated by foreign intelligence agencies and uh, subsumed in the neoliberal world order. So uh, rather than that, I would like to see an Iran that's a bulwark of Prometheism within the Islamic world. It's not perfect to have that take place within the context of a Shiite regime, um, but it is doable. And I think that you know, 20 years from now, the Islamic Republic of Iran, which has changed a lot in the last 40 years, could be as far away from uh, any kind of Shiite uh, theocratic ideology as China is now away from Maoism. I mean, you still have posters of Mao up in Beijing and Shanghai, but, you know, uh, basically China is, is no longer a Maoist communist system. It's now some form of like uh, Confucian imperialism that is guiding Chinese policy. As far as uh, Trump uh, brokering those deals between uh, Israel and the Arab uh, Gulf states, uh, do you think that could have major uh, geopolitical implications that would that could pose a barrier to uh, Iran's uh, influence in the Middle East? Because under the Shah, Iran and Israel were allies. What are your general thoughts on the alliance of Israel and Saudi Arabia? I think it's a disaster. Uh, you know, I, Trump's entire Iran policy has been a disaster. Trump had a tremendous opportunity to redefine the American relationship with Iran. And instead, he passed these crippling sanctions on, he imposed these crippling sanctions on Iran, uh, which, among other things, forced India to abandon a decabillion dollar uh, trade agreement uh, with Iran, a, a long-term, you know, decades-long, uh, tens of billions of dollars trade agreement with Iran. And uh, this meant that Iran had to replace India with China. And so, you know, this, this uh, deal that uh, the Iranian expats and others are, are all moaning and groaning about, this $25 billion, um, I mean, a 25-year-long uh, you know, uh, contract, multi-billion dollar contract with um, China, is a replacement of a deal that Iran had with India, which was scrapped because of the sanctions that Trump imposed on Iran. And then there's been all the saber rattling. Trump brought us within hours of a war with Iran. Fr frankly, not within hours, within minutes of a full-scale war with Iran on several occasions. So Trump's uh, Iran policy, I think, has been a disaster. And this latest uh, agreement that you mentioned between Israel, uh, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain is another element in Trump's long-term policy of strangling Iran and ultimately empowering Israel to be able to strike Iranian territory. Because, of course, you, you realize that 
when Israel is making deals with Bahrain and United Arab Emirates, that's going to involve uh, the positioning of Israeli Air Force jets on Bahraini and uh, Emirati territory right across the Persian Gulf from Iran so that they can fly to, to Bahrain and the Emirates, sit down there in large numbers, bring whole sorties there, refuel, and then have a very short flight path uh, to strike targets deep inside Iran and then be able to fly back to safety in Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. Qu quote, safety, unquote, because I think they're actually being delusional. And if they start such a war, they will pay you know, very heavily uh, for, for making that miscalculation. But I think, yeah, it, it's been a disastrous policy, and, and this is one of the reasons why I don't support Donald Trump. Oh, yeah, you supported uh, Tulsi, and I supported her as well. I'm in the same boat as you. I voted for Trump in 2016, and I can't support him this time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate. I mean, you know, uh, the, the United States is headed toward an unprecedented sociopolitical catastrophe, uh, there's a prospect of another civil war within the next uh, year or two, and it'll be a lot worse than the one that we fought in the 1800s. Before I wrap up the show, uh, Jason, do you want to plug your book where people can find it? Uh, you wanna, do you want to plug your GoFundMe and any other upcoming projects you have? Well, actually, uh, rather than the GoFundMe, I started a Patreon. Um, and uh, so I would uh, direct people to uh, Jason Reza Giorgiani. Uh, at Patreon if they want to support my work um, and uh, the increasingly costly legal battle also that I'm waging against the people who defamed me and destroyed my academic career. Uh, but the, the book Prometheism can be found at Amazon. Um, you know, the Arctos fulfillment of, of that book is based on Amazon distribution anyway. So I would just direct people to Amazon.com uh, where they can find Prometheism. Uh, my website is JasonRezzoGiorgiani.com. Uh, and Prometheism has its own website at Prometheism.com. Uh, Jason Reza Giorgiani, it's been an excellent show, uh, very informative. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Robert. It's been a pleasure, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Take care.